So we're in our 1 Corinthians series. Um, it's been great so far. And we're just going to look at, we're starting chapter 2. So we're going, we're going slowly. It seems strange, doesn't it, after doing this massive overview on the Bible to then be focusing on just a few verses. And I saw, I wasn't in for Matt's speech, I was out for it last week, but I heard he preached on five verses. So I felt the challenge here. Okay, we've got to keep this to five verses. So I'm going to have an attempt at this. But I have to be honest, sometimes you come to these passages where you're preaching and sometimes it just flows very easily and then at other times it just feels really hard. And uh, this week was one of those weeks where I just really struggled to bring it together. It was a lot, it's a lot of really the same introduction as what we've had in this first chapter. Paul in these five verses is essentially going back over. So just to remind you again, if you've not been in for any of these, we're looking at the Corinthian church, this poor town um, who we think is very much a little bit like Liverpool, very innovative, um, but there's lots of stuff going on in the church here. Um, there's people suing each other, there's incest, there's, there's all sorts of terrible things going on in the church. Paul has found this out. He had, he had established that church, he had planted it, he'd spent 18 months there um, with the church there establishing it. And he gets news later on from some friends in the church of some of the issues going on. And so we've seen in this first chapter that he starts with the big issue of division, okay, in the church and disunity. And he reminds the church that actually we're united around the gospel of Christ. Um, and they seem to be wanting to follow different leaders. There's been different guys going in there, like, like Paul who established it, and Apollos and, and Peter. And he says, no, 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 it's not about following man. It's about following Christ. And here we are in chapter 2. I'll read it out. Okay. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So we've got five verses here, and again, he is addressing division, really, again. But this passage, a lot of what comes out of it, comes out of as we look at Acts, and we see him traveling around the churches. And um, this first bit is argued essentially from Acts 17. Just before Paul gets to Corinth, to establish the church there, he ends up in Athens. And Athens is obviously next door to Corinth, but it essentially was like a philosophical um, center. So you had Socrates and Plato and all these philosophers, okay? And so the city was one that was very academic. Um, there was a lot of debating going on. And it's been said, so why does he say... Um, I came to you not with eloquence or human wisdom. And he says, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's been said about Paul that what he's writing here in this passage is a reflection on his time in Athens. Because he went, I don't know if you remember the story, but he quotes uh, the unknown gods there in Athens. Um, and he's debating essentially with the elite academics of the time, and everybody's following these philosophies, and it suggested that he kind of tried to experiment with a new kind of preaching, and he quoted from Greek poets as he brought the gospel, um, 
and that this pandering to their culture, he avoided using offensive words of the cross, and he tried to win the Athenians over using, well, according to the rules of Greek philosophy. So he tried to play at their game. This is what some people would argue. And what that essentially means is that this well-crafted sermon in Acts 17 was an attempt to preach the gospel with human words of wisdom. And some people say it was a real misjudgment by Paul to attempt to do that. And um, people say there's no letter to the Athenians like there is to Corinth because, because he did this. And that's why when he got to Corinth, he resolved to preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. And there's a danger with this. Um, just to say one of, the, one of the reasons this was a real battle is actually when you look at this chapter, it's quite a controversial chapter. And I, I actually looked at a lot of commentaries, and there was such a disparity of, over, the, over the commentaries on this chapter. Um, there is, I mean, honestly, there must be four or five different views on what is being said here. Um, but I think one of the dangers that we have, if we go down this line of saying, Paul got it wrong in Athens, he should never have decided to try and look at the culture there. He should have just preached Christ and him crucified. The danger is that we end up with sloppy preachers, okay? It's actually all about just preaching Christ and him crucified, and we turn up, and we, that's, that's all we do. Um, and essentially, all we need is the Spirit, because it's the Spirit that changes people. And we don't need to think about how to connect with our cultures, because actually, there is only one message. Um, and I actually don't think that is what has happened here. I don't think that is what Paul is trying to bring to this crowd, um, to the Corinthians, as he's talking to them. But I think what he is addressing, essentially, is the same thing as what he's addressed in chapter 1. He's addressing division, okay? The church at Corinth, being right next door to Athens, they were used to these philosophers. They had heard, and their culture was being shaped by Athens, okay? And so it was becoming quite academic. So people were getting into understanding, trying to understand these philosophers of what they were talking about. And he was essentially trying to have a discussion with them to say, it's not about these philosophies. It's not about man being persuasive. It's not about listening to man's clever arguments. And essentially, you have been impressed by man's arguments. You've been impressed by their intelligence, by their wealth, by their success. And you've been shaped by it. And I just started thinking as I thought about this, what in our culture, who are some of the prominent people in our society that are set in our worldview? Okay, these are people whose ideas and concepts are affecting our very culture. Who do you think some of those are? Anyone? Any, any comments? The media? Yeah. Yes. Richard Dawkins. Two out of three there, people. Well done. <laughs> My first one was this guy, Stephen Hawkins. Okay? This scientific mind. And I think that his view... Is, is given such a high level, okay, of this science being against God, of it proving this or proving that. And actually what we've seen with science is as they discover more and more, they realize that we have a, an earth that shows design. It shows a creator. 
uh, as they are able to reach more and more planets and they realize there is no life form on them, they start to understand that it's absolutely extraordinary design that we have here on planet Earth. And the case for a God increases. You mentioned Dawkins there. Uh, this is Richard Dawkins. And his, again, science uh, of evolution, it, it essentially is taught in our schools as fact what Richard Dawkins says. And so I think he's another person that in our culture does shape our worldview and the media. And I think lots of different types of media there have a huge impact, whether it be the news, whether it be social media. There is lots of voices out there now who are having and shaping our culture. And you know, the culture of philosophy is of debating for hours on end and pitching one argument against the other. And um, Tor and I watch a series called Suits. Anyone seen Suits? It's a great series. But it's all about these lawyers, okay, who are essentially the, the best lawyers in the world, really. And it's, it's this one guy who um, has a photographic memory. And so he can look at something and he can look at a document, a legal document, once. And he can read out line for line. You know, if it's a thousand-word document, he's got it. And the whole thing is about looking at these clever arguments of how they win cases in court. And there's something... You know, why, why is it that this is a popular series? There's something you just love. You're attracted to these guys with this immense understanding and knowledge in this area. And there's something as, as the human race where we are. We, we get very attracted by it. And um, we want to see how he wins over on this argument in this court case. And the clever tit for tat on as they fight back as, as one thing happens and another. And I want to say this. Paul is suggesting to the Corinthians, I don't think it's just the Corinthians, but he's suggesting to the Corinthians that the gospel itself is not just about words. It's not an argument to win with people, okay? It's not, um, it's not something that we have to fight for to win. It has power in and of itself. It is the very power of God. And I believe he gives us three points in these five verses that are just gems that we can focus on and look at as we approach the gospel today, as we reach people with this. So we're going to look at them, not in order, I'm just picking them in a slightly different order. So this verse here, verse 3, says, I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. What does this mean? What does it mean for the Apostle Paul? You know, he has his reputation for being this really, you know, uh, you wouldn't expect him to be intimidated at all, would you? He's, he's, a, he's a very reasoned arguer as well. He's able to argue his case. And, um, and yet he says here, I came to you with weakness, and in weakness, with great fear and, and trembling. And as I mentioned, there are many interpretations going on as I looked at uh, what this passage is actually arguing. And I, I want to take two of them and say, I think they both have merit in what they're saying. So some argue that, this fear and trembling is actually about Paul before he came to Corinth, his experiences. And we read it through Acts. And so what we see before Corinth, before he establishes this church, before he comes across them, he, he has some very intimidating situations that go on. So we see in the run-up to Corinth, he visits Philippi, okay? And in Philippi, there is no synagogue. Normally, he would go straight to the synagogue and preach, but actually, there is no synagogue in Philippi. 
So he goes down to the river and he starts reaching some ladies there, some people who are meeting who are, are Jews. And there's this, um, there's this girl who has a demon in her who essentially is, 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 a, is telling people's fortunes and things like that. And um, he gets annoyed with her. And so he casts this demon out of her. And the owner of this girl gets very angry because she's been making him money. And he says, you've done something totally illegal there. And so he takes it to the authorities. And what happens is Paul then gets attacked by a crowd of people because of this, the traders. And he gets beaten many times with a rod and he gets put in jail. Now, that's pretty bad. You know, we think if you get put in jail nowadays, you don't expect to be beaten on the way in. But Paul was beaten on the way in. But what does he do when you're there? He's, He's singing hymns. Okay, so he starts singing hymns. Suddenly the power of God comes like an earthquake and the chains are released from all the captives in prison there and the doors fly open. And you have the jailer there who suddenly freaks out because if he lets anybody out of the jail, he gets killed. Okay, and he freaks out. He thinks everyone's gone. Oh no, what's happened? I've fallen asleep on the job. You know, I'm sure... Nurses who are on night shifts and doctors can sort of half understand, oh, I've just fallen asleep. And Paul essentially says to him, no, don't worry. You know, and they, they see that God comes and he saves this man. And this man and his whole family are saved. So that's Philippi. And then they move on. And they move on to Thessalonica. And there's a lot of uh, agony going on there, and there's a lot of people trying to come against Paul, and so he gets escorted out of the city by fellow Christians, protecting from attack, and he goes on to Berea. And in Berea, the angry men from Thessal- Thessalonica, they come to Berea because they hear he's there, and they want to stir up problems, they want to stir up the crowds against him, so again, they have to leave Berea, and he goes on to Antioch, okay? Obviously, Antioch is right before Corinth. In, a- in-, in Antioch, he comes to the great philosophers, and he has, this, he has this debate with them. He reasons with them. Some of them, it says, mocked him, okay? Um, they were mocking Paul. Some of them, though, actually, says they came to put their faith in Christ. And they actually welcomed him back. They said, we'd love to hear from you again. And then he gets to Corinth. But in Corinth, we read it in Acts 19. He says this, the Lord spoke to him. He says, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision He says, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to harm, no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. So we we see here that Paul is, on the run-up to this, has had to flee numerous times for his life, essentially. Um, And God does speak to him. God brings faith to him in that city and says to him, this is not going to be a city where you have to flee. And he brings him joy because he says, there's many people here. I don't think these were people who were Christians already. God was saying, these are people who are going to come into my kingdom, who you're going to see established in my church. And so Paul has the faith to stay. And um, do you know what's great? It is good to know that the apostle Paul may have got scared. Because I don't know about you, but there are, there are times and situations that we're in where it's scary, isn't it, to bring the gospel. Um, and there can be fear, there can be intimidation. 
And as I was thinking about this, I actually thought of a story. Matt's left the room, I think, at the minute. But we, um, <clears throat> in Leeds, we were running a discipleship group together, and we um, used to set tasks for the guys in our discipleship group. And we'd been out, we'd been on the street doing some treasure hunting, it's called. So we go and we give words of knowledge to people in the street. And we gave everyone a challenge to go and do it this week before we met. And um, so we all came back with our stories of how this had gone. And Matt came back that week. And he said, guys, I was cycling to work in the morning. And it, was, it must have been 7 o'clock in the morning. He said, I saw this guy on the street and I felt God speak to me. And so I got off my bike. And I came to him and I said, excuse me, mate, I believe I'm just on a treasure hunt here. I believe God's spoken to me. And he says, F off. You're not one of those God people, are you? And Matt was like, where do I go with this one? And this is the problem. It's intimidating. Okay. And so there, there Matt had stepped out in faith. Felt God had spoken to him. He got off his bike. You know, it's half seven in the morning. The last thing you expect is to be told to F off, and, and there he was, and bless him, he was following through on bringing the gospel to somebody at 7.30 in the morning, but it isn't all roses when you're bringing the gospel, you know, we do hear great stories of how God breaks into situations, don't we, but actually, people are hostile to the gospel. Um, the other thing I think about this passage on what is Paul saying it's not just about the fact that maybe he was scared. Maybe there was some fear and trembling there. I think there's something to do here with posture, okay? There's a posture of him bringing the gospel. What do I mean by that? Well, Philippians 2 verse 12 tells us to work out. Paul talked about working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And for Paul, in this context, the fear and trembling was a posture of humility, okay? Trusting in the grace of God and not in earthly powers or on his own abilities or good works. And you know, Matt spoke about this last week about this humility that we're to have. And I think it's so key as we bring the gospel to people in this city and to the nations that we have to think about the posture with which we're coming to people. And just th looking back at uh, what Matt said about posture, he quoted C.S. Lewis. And he said, um, according to C.S. Lewis, elevating ourselves above others, seeing ourselves as more important and better and higher than others by some criteria or another would be pride. Um, pride is all about where we're looking. It's our preoccupation of our time and our thoughts in life. Um, and it causes us to look and judge those around us. I just want to say this. As we evangelize to people in this city, as we reach out to people, there are going to be people with some very strong views, different views to what we believe. There are going to be people with other faiths who stand very firm in, in their faith. And when we come to them, it's so important that we come with this posture of humility, trusting in God's grace. And I say that because we have to trust that he can change anyone in any situation. And you may look at that person and think, there is not a chance that I can see this person come into Christ. But if you come in that, you've already judged them. You've already taken away the entire power of 
God. He is the one that saves. We bring the message. We bring it with humility. We bring it with love. And I believe that is how Paul was teaching the Corinthians. They would have been so used to the philosophers who would have came straight in. It would have been all about winning their argument and their debate. And he's saying, no, no. We come with a whole different posture. We come with one of love and humility, but trusting fully in God's grace to change and transform people from the inside out. And I know as I was a student in Leeds, as I think back, do you know, there were times where we would have, I would be having almost arguments with some of my uh, Muslim friends, uh, with people who didn't believe in Christ, who were atheists. And if I'm honest, as I examine my heart now looking back, there was something about me wanting to win an argument. There was something about me wanting to be very clever and trip them up with the next big question. Ha, let's see how you answer this one. It's not about that. You know, and so as we come in humility, we must remember this. It's not about haranguing people. Man, these guys just need to hear it more and more and more. It's not about haranguing them. God is the one who saves. And I remember in Leeds, there was a, there was a group of people who would meet, well, almost every day in the streets. And you've seen them. I'm sure you know them. These are the people that are shouting hell and damnation on the whole nation. And if I'm honest, people walking past, how they view the Christian, man, it doesn't do us any favors in the church. There needs to be a humility and a love as we come knowing that God's gospel will change lives. Secondly, he says this, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom but on God's power. I just want to reaffirm as we look at this that Paul isn't suggesting that we don't think about how we reach different cultures. He shows time and time again with his preachers in Acts that we see that he thinks very carefully about the cultures that he's reaching, about how that gospel is going to reach that culture uh, by trying to understand their worldview, where they're coming from. But he's not shying away from the fundamental truth of Christ and him crucified. But as I've said already, clever words are not what transforms people's hearts. Clever words, no matter how clever they are, don't transform our hearts. They might make us think, but it's the power of God, okay, that brings salvation. It's the power of God that transforms people. And it takes that very power, that dynamo that Chris spoke about a few weeks back, um, to change people. And Paul's reminding us here, actually he'll talk about it again, we'll come to it in chapter 14, about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Okay? When he was in Corinth, the meetings were full of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And these are the charismatic gifts of the Spirit that God has given for his church. And they include things like revelation, knowledge, prophecy, teaching, edification, encouragement, speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, the working of miracles, and gifts of healing. And he wanted the Corinthians' faith to rest on the power of God and not in the wisdom of people. 
And um, many of you will know we're part of a group of churches called New Frontiers. And we've always believed this to be one of our values. Okay? We are a church both of the Word and of the Spirit of God. But I want to ask, what does that actually mean? What does that phrase mean? You may have heard it before. We're a church of Word and Spirit. And it's a phrase that actually almost all evangelical churches would agree with. As you go around, you say, are you a church of Word and Spirit? Yes, we are. Um, and I want to say this, it means not just believing in the Bible, the authority of the Bible, in the Word of God and, and the Spirit, it means holding them with appropriate balance. And I'm going to use some stereotypical examples and try and explain what it means, but what I'm, what I'm not doing, please don't hear that I'm slating other churches. This message is here to shape us as a church, and so we need to be careful, actually, how are we outworking this? Okay, are we truly a church where we have a, a healthy balance of the Word of God and the Spirit of God moving? And historically, there have always been word churches that people would say don't allow the Holy Spirit to move, and there have been spirit churches who barely open their Bibles. And that's the debate that goes on. And as a church, we want to navigate that right balance. Um, we want to be totally committed to both the Word and the Spirit. And Andrew Wilson, who is a, um, a theologian within New Frontiers, says this. He describes what it means to be Word and Spirit. So Word, we are committed to the absolute authority and accuracy of Scripture, even where it flies in the face of ecclesial tradition, contemporary culture, or intellectual fashion. Some quite long words in there, I'm aware. But essentially, we are committed to looking at the Bible, outworking it exegetically, outworking what it actually says. We don't want to change it because we think, actually, this might be a bit easier for our culture. We want to connect with culture, but we don't want to compromise on the very word of God. Okay, they're two different things. And the spirit, we're committed to experiencing, not merely, not merely believing in the Holy Spirit, in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit today, eagerly desiring spiritual gifts, and especially prophecy, taking the book of Acts as a vision of what church life can be, rather than a record of what it once was, and pursuing baptism in and filling with the Holy Spirit. This is what it means to be a word and spirit church. Okay? And I've been in contexts where I've heard great exegetical sermons, and it's given me great head, head knowledge. But honestly, there's that point where you think, I haven't been touched or, or, or changed by that in some way, because I haven't allowed the Spirit to work on me. And there's been times when I've been in sermons where the sermon's been terrible, but the power of God has broken out. And you think, how did that happen? You know, there's something we link, we sort of link that exegetical preaching. Well, that, that's, now the Spirit can break out, but... Hold on, that was totally heretical. There's no way the Spirit's breaking out here. And you'll find God can do whatever he wants. Okay? I remember um, as a student, I had a guy in my halls called Reese. He was a, he was a Welsh guy. And I was talking to him day after day about the gospel. He was interested. I took him to church twice. And still he'd made no commitment. And um, there was this guy called Rambabu. And um, some of you will have heard of him. He has a, a healing ministry, okay? That's what he has faith for. And he sees lots of healings. And he was coming to Sheffield, and I said, look, Reese, do you want to come and see this guy? And he was like, 
yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, I said, look, it's, it's this night. You need to be here at 6, and we'll travel over. Yeah, not a problem. It got to 6 o'clock, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking, I'm thinking, my lift had just arrived to take me over there. No sign of Reese. I thought, I'm going to have to just go. And I was, it was that disappointment of, oh, Lord, I just felt you were going to do something. And I saw him running down the hill. I thought, great. So we picked him up, took him to this meeting. And um, we sat down in the meeting, and I was just aware. Reese is probably going to see some things that he hasn't seen as yet. And it's going to freak him out, you know. I wanted to prepare him for it. And so I said, Reese, listen, if you need to go out at any time, just let me know. I'll come out with you. It's not a problem. You don't have to stay sitting here. And um, Rambabu got up, and he started speaking. And he started preaching the gospel. And he's an Indian guy. You can tell by the name he's not, he's not English. And sometimes there's some, some, some challenges with, um, with preaching to an English audience when you're not English. And I was sitting there to preach. I thought, you know, he's got the foundations, the fundamentals. Um, and he was, getting, he was getting very, you know, excited. And I said to Reese, Reese, how are you doing? You know, it was that, that sort of, how are you doing? Are you okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he then stopped and he says, right. I've got these words of knowledge, and, I want, and God wants to heal, and he says, I want you all to stand, and we stood, and he said, Chris, I want to go, and I said, okay, let's, let's go, I started walking, and he didn't come, I thought, he's just asked, he's just asked me to go, so I, I went back to him, and says, Reese, are you okay, and he just, he couldn't even look at me, and I was like, I'm just going to leave this, something's happening, and I remember, about five minutes later, he turned around. He says, oh, my words. Did you feel that? I was like, um, <laughs> tell me what you're feeling, Reese." And he said, the power. Did you, it just went straight. What he couldn't understand is he felt everybody must have experienced the exact same thing as he'd experienced at that point in time. And that night, he made a commitment he had felt the manifest presence of God. God had come and saved him. It wasn't about Rambabu's preaching. It wasn't even about seeing a healing because it was before any healings had happened. It was purely the Spirit of God came on him. And he recognized that God is real. And there's some other funny stories. You know, I was hearing about Wigglesworth. You know, here's this guy, he's, a, he's from Bradford, he's a plumber, um, last century, and he was a terrible preacher. And there's points where his wife was actually, his wife was actually the better preacher. She was from the Salvation Army. And um, he'd be preaching, and she'd stand up at the back and she'd say, Smithy, sit down. Give somebody else a go. And yet, the Spirit of God came on him, and he saw thousands and thousands and thousands of people saved and healed. Okay, just read some of his stories. They're phenomenal. Um, but I want to say, we as a church, we're committed to be a word and a spirit church. I was so pleased that even this morning, and I hope you see it, we expect God to move. He's living and he's active. Okay? And he wants to do a work amongst us as we meet together. He wants to do a work, not just here corporately, but there's something about the corporate body. He just loves to come and to have his way. He loves to come and heal. It's his kingdom come. And so I want to say to us as a church, we want to keep an eye on this. 
Because it's very easy, actually. And I've seen it. We, there's lots of debates that go on today, trying to have seeker-sensitive services, because we want to see people saved. Actually, we want, we want to connect with culture. We want people to come in. But what we don't want to do is we don't want to trade one thing off for the other. We believe that it's the Spirit of God who brings salvation. We don't want to say, just don't turn up to this one. We don't, we don't want anything happening that actually is going to freak anyone out. Actually, we want the Spirit to come and to bring salvation. And finally, um, verse 2. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ and him crucified. Do you know the cross of Christ, I want to say to you, the gospel is not just an event in history. It's not just something we preach at evangelistic events like our Easter service and say, right, we've done it, we've preached at our evangelistic event, there we go. The gospel of Christ is rich, it's multifaceted, it's life-giving, it's life-transforming. It's the work of God. It's not just for those who haven't put their faith in Christ yet. It's actually for all of us. Whether we've been saved as long as Sheila, or whether we were saved yesterday. The gospel is something that we come to each day. And it changes us, and it transforms us. And it transforms us to become more Christ-like, okay? More like him. And Chris spoke on the cross of Christ and him crucified. And he spoke excellently on it a few weeks back. And obviously, he talked about how the cross, to many, as they look at it, it's perceived as absolute ludicrous, as weakness, you know? And yet, we see that one man dying on a cross is able to forgive the sins of the whole of humanity. We see that one man dying is able to repair the rift between creator God and created beings. We see that one man dying is able to bring eternal life to all who put their trust in him. And of course, death wasn't the end, Jesus, was it? The dynamite power of God, the very power of God, raised him from the dead. Okay? And he defeated and conquered death. And I want to just end today by preaching verse 2. I preached nothing but the cross of Christ. Do you know the cross of Jesus, as we look at it there, it's a gory story of shame and pain and violence. And it's almost impossible to speak too strongly about it. I want to say, if it doesn't bother us, then we probably haven't thought it through. It would be like saying the Holocaust or genocide doesn't really bother us. It's an event which, in different reactions, I think we'd agree are completely inappropriate. And looking at the cross today, it's not aimed 
to disgust you. Although it will. It's not aimed to overwhelm you. Though it might. But it's to inform you. So that the phrase, Christ crucified, can have the same impact on us as it had in the first century. If you've seen The Passion of the Christ, the film by Mel Gibson, you'll have some idea of what goes on here. But just, uh, just to let you know, the crucifixion itself was invented by the Persians around somewhere around the 5th BC, and it continued in widespread use until Constantine in the 4th AD banned it. And it was widely acknowledged and understood to be the most despicable and disgusting way to kill someone ever. And in fact, crucifixion, the word, it spawned its own word for intense pain. Excruciating. Literally means from the cross. And in essence, what happens here? Crucifixion was about a slow death by asphyxiations. And victims gradually suffocated to death as their lungs filled with their own fluids. And it could take days to die. And the criminal was secured to the cross by six-inch nails, actually through the wrists and the ankles. And of course, that in itself would bring across massive blood loss as veins and arteries were severed. The cross was then vertically lifted and it was dropped into a hole in the ground, at which point many bones of the criminal will be dislocated because of the jolts. Hanging in the air with nothing but nails supporting his weight, the criminal would have to push himself up and down in order to breathe. At each point, the objective was to make crucifixion as long and torturous as it could possibly be. So barbaric was the process that even Roman citizens and women were hardly ever crucified. But we know crucifixion isn't even the whole story of what happens because before the cross, at least in Jesus' day, there was a severe penalty known as scourging which involved being hung from a post in the courtyard while a multi-lashed whip embedded with bone and glass or metal was used against the back, the legs, and the backsides. And we can see here in this picture what's happened, what's been the result there. And a soldier would essentially scourge its way in such a way as to ensure that that glass and that metal got stuck into the criminal's flesh, and it would rip it out, exposing muscles and even bone. And obviously some would die from that very experience before they even got hung on a cross. But for those who didn't, it was no surprise that trying to carry a splintered, um, massive wooden stake up a hill was impossible. And then while hanging on the cross, naked, 
the body would tend to go into shock. And the victim would probably lose control of all bodily functions, adding total humiliation to the pain that they're suffering. He'd be ridiculed and he'd be spat upon by the gathered crowd. And as urine and feces and blood and sweat mingle together in that pool on the ground, the message of the cross could not be clearer. The Romans are in charge here. And this Messiah is not. All of which is quite staggering, really. That within a few days, the event we've just studied came to be known as the exact opposite of that. Because according to Paul and thousands of people around the Mediterranean world, the events of Good Friday meant the Messiah is in charge around here, and the Romans are not. The Jews believed that being strung upon a cross was a curse by God. The Gentiles believed they were just helpless criminals. And the shock in preaching that anyone who would admit their Messiah had been executed on a cross, but more, they would proclaim it actively, that their Messiah was executed on a cross was unthinkable. As a church, we are committed. We are a gospel-centered church. Everything that we are, everything that we do, is because of the very gospel of Christ. The good news that he paid the cost. He took on the full wrath and anger of God for the sins that we commit. And I think as a church, we want to keep recovering our amazement at Calvary. Our horror, actually, at what Jesus suffered and our thankfulness for what he accomplished on our behalf. Do you know the cross and the crucifixion of Christ, it might be idiotic or frustrating to everyone else. But we know that it's the very power and wisdom of God Almighty. Almighty. 